So Evan, I've got a question for you. Go ahead, Chris. You see a person with facial tattoos. How long is a respectable amount of time to stop and look? Because on the one hand, you want to check out the artwork on their face. On the other hand, you don't want to be murdered. Are you asking about a continuous look or maybe lots of little looks? Mm, maybe lots of little looks, but you don't want to be too obvious with the little looks, do you? But definitely not. I would say two second looks at a time, followed by 10 seconds of maybe a sip of a milkshake or other beverage, and then no more than maybe three looks. I think that's all you get before it gets weird. Hey, and welcome to Opposite of Neutral. I'm Chris. And I'm Evan. Evan is an engineer by training and a teacher by trade. Evan is responsible for my favorite gaming addiction. Evan was the one who bought me a copy of Civilization VI, taught me how to play, and then ruined my life with it. Thank you very much, Evan. Well, you're very welcome, especially because you then went on to be much better at it than I was because you were playing it a lot more than I was. But I am so glad that you had a good time. Chris Wolf taught social studies and history for a number of years in the great state of Washington, Carter, and Vietnam. Chris also made the bold move of running and winning a local election for, I want to say, city council to help his community. And that is an example of being the opposite of neutral. Chris? Yeah, it was actually the town. But yeah, I was on the town council for two years. You can fill us in on the details of your campaign strategy. I think that's something to talk about in a later episode. Can't wait. Yeah, and neither can our listeners. All right, let's talk about this episode. The idea came from a friend of ours, Andrew, and his idea was having good intentions but bad ideas. We thought of this as sort of a backfire. I want to start with this idea of good intentions because, as Evan and I both know, we worked at a place where one of our first meeting agreements was to assume good intentions. And I like that idea in everyday life, that we do assume that other people have good intentions. But on a larger scale, I'm thinking about history here. Is it a good idea to assume good intentions? I think about Native Americans meeting Columbus, for example. And those Native Americans assumed that Columbus had good intentions. When in fact, his intentions were maybe good for him, but not good for the natives there. And maybe that's something we need to think about, is when you say this term good intentions, I think we're really feeling empathy for another person, trying to get into their shoes and understand where they're coming from. But in life, maybe don't want to have too much empathy sometimes. On an everyday level, yes, we should probably assume good intentions, but on the larger scale, maybe not. I mean... When you try to get into someone's shoes, it's a good thing. I think that's a very important idea. But history has taught us that many times people don't have good intentions. And I want to start with this idea of the good intentions or maybe lack thereof and the ideas that come from them. And I'm going to talk about one of my favorite periods in history, the Great Leap Forward. For those of you who don't know, the Great Leap Forward is also known as the, the second five-year plan by the Chinese Communist Party. 
This is an idea that came from Mao. And the idea behind it is that China wanted to increase the industrial production. They didn't want to take things slowly. They wanted this giant leap forward. They wanted to surpass Great Britain and become one of the world leaders in industrial power. And they wanted to do it within five years, which is a very ambitious goal. And on top of that, Mao's belief was all he had to do is harness the power of the people. So he had faith in the people of China that they could do anything if they set their minds to it. They just worked hard enough. If they were a little more creative, they could do it. So in a way, I see the good intentions there. The intention was to make the country grow, and the intention was to give the power to the people to do so. But let's think about the results. Because what I find fascinating is just sort of the random things that occurred from this. So one of the things that started, they wanted to increase iron production, and they did so with backyard furnaces. Do you know what a backyard furnace is, Evan? I assume that it's a furnace that you make in your backyard. And I bet the quality is not where it should be. Absolutely. So whole communities would come together. They would build a steel furnace in a shared space. And then they would melt down things that were already made out of steel to make new steel. But most of it was unusable. And so what they did is they took cooking pots. They took bicycles. They took things that were useful and made them useless. But they worked all night. In fact, communities tried to outdo each other in making more steel than other communities. And it seemed as if this was going to be a really great idea. In addition, they wanted to increase their food output, which is another good intention. You want to make sure there's enough food for the people. But one of the strangest things they did, they believed that the sparrows, the birds, were eating the grain. So they decided to kill as many sparrows as possible. And what they would do is they would stand outside, and when they saw sparrows trying to land, they would scare them off. And they would like bang, well, maybe not as many pots and pans as they used to have, but they would bang pots and pans together. They would make loud noises. They would scare them so the, the sparrows never landed and were totally exhausted, would fall from the sky dead. And therefore, the sparrows would stop eating the grain. Seems like a great idea, right, Evan? It doesn't seem great that birds are falling from the sky. My question to you, because you know the history of this, did they have the knowledge or the people who could chime in and say how good these ideas were? Well, that's one of the things, Evan. They did have some people, and actually the idea came from scientists. That One thing they didn't notice, though, is that the sparrows did not just eat grain. They also ate bugs, and they ate the bugs that were eating the grain. In fact, they ate more bugs than they did grain, and it turns out that by killing the sparrows, you had many more insects. Those insects were the ones that ended up destroying the grain. So you talked about the experts. There was one man who they really looked up to. He was a Russian scientist, last name of Lysenko. And Lysenko, he was an agricultural scientist. And he said, what you needed to do was actually plant seeds closer together and deeper into the ground. That would lead to stronger roots 
and they didn't need as much space as people believed. Mm. And so they followed this agricultural scientist and tried to use his implementation. And it turned out that doesn't work. You can't just plant a bunch of seeds close together. They all start to go at the same time. There's not enough nutrients in the soil. There's not enough water. And they all die at the same time. So essentially what they did is in trying to increase their agricultural output, they destroyed their agricultural output. But the problem is no one would speak up about this. Everyone was afraid of disappointing Mao. And so people were claiming that they had these big agricultural yields, but in fact, they were heading towards famine. And it got worse each year, and no one was willing to tell the truth because no one wanted to be punished for disagreeing with Mao and disagreeing with this idea of the power of the people. And in fact, at times, Mao would go take tours of the countryside. So he'd take a train, and there were trains ahead of him full of grain who would stop in front of each place they went to to make it look like there's all this grain there. And so they were actively trying to fool him. In fact, there's this great photograph of children standing on top of fields of wheat because the wheat was so close together. But it turns out they were actually standing on a bench and they had planted wheat around it. And, and all of this was done in order to give the illusion that the system was working, that this wasn't a bad idea, that this was in fact a really good idea. And it turns out it was so bad that this led to one of the worst famines in history. The low estimate is that 15 million people died from this famine. The high estimate is closer to 60 million. No one really knows because no one was willing to say exactly how many people were dying and what was going wrong. I'd say this is a great example of good intentions, but a really bad idea. Don't you think that the people who were following the orders, though, thought that they were also having good intentions by continuing to support what Mao and the scientists had said? Because they were the source of information. If the scientist presumably comes up with an idea, it's tested, there's information that backs it up, maybe even some scientific method with controls and experimental groups that say, this is the way to go. Do you think they had good intentions or was it purely them trying to save themselves? And you can make an argument that saving yourself is not a bad intention, that they knew they'd be punished for this. The Mao had actually created a system. We could talk about the 100 Flowers campaign where Mao had actually at one point said that he wanted to, a 100 flowers to bloom, which meant that he wanted people to speak up and share their thoughts, opinions. But when the thoughts and opinions were encountered to his, he actually imprisoned or executed people who criticized him. And so people knew that there were consequences for speaking out against what Mao believed. And so can you blame them? And the answer could be yes, we should definitely blame them. But it's very easy to blame in hindsight than it is at the time. When there's that much fear in the face of uncertainty, self-preservation is sometimes all we have. Maybe in that context, it makes sense. The intention of self-preservation is a really good one. I mean, for yourself, maybe not for others. So Evan, when you were thinking about this, what popped into your mind? Well, I go to this idea that we definitely move too quickly in believing that we've done the empathy step. 
You mentioned that good intentions often involve having some empathy. And I think we hurry when we're trying to solve a problem into believing that we understand what the problem is. And the way good design is done is that empathy step is the most important and the most involved. You have to really understand the people that are involved when you're trying to solve a people-related problem. Something that really came into existence during my early years of teaching was Common Core. Common Core was a response to a problem that has always existed in math education. I can tell you the most common thing that I hear when people talk about math education is that they never use what they learned in math class. They might have learned a bunch of algorithms and they have forgotten them. Maybe there are a few that they have remembered and, and have never forgotten things like long division or their multiplication tables, whatever it is. And so there are pockets of things that they know and have memorized really well. And the rest of it, they just forgot. They also typically say that they didn't really understand what they were doing. They just learned the steps and they followed them. Evan, I, I would say that's true about history as well. People have this idea that history is just names and dates. When in fact, I think it's a much broader thing. And people say that what they learn in history class is pretty useless as well. Maybe. I think when you say the same things about other subjects, and I include history in here, it's easier to understand why it might matter, why it does matter. Reading, for sure. Writing. Relevance, I think, becomes much more obvious because history is happening in the real world. You look at math problems that you're typically confronting in a math class, they're made up. They're arbitrary. They're not real. If you're trying to figure out how many watermelons and apples were bought, just look on the receipt. You don't have to make this a problem where you say 10 fruits were bought and the total cost was fifteen fifty-five. It's like That's not something you typically ask, but that's often what word problems are in the context of math. The experience that people have with school math is typically not a good one. And the good idea was a bunch of people hearing these comments and listening to students and parents and saying that we can do better rather than having what many states had, which was tons of curriculum to cover, concepts that are really disconnected. Maybe there could be some bigger ideas that tie everything together. And big picture thinking skills that are math related that would not only be useful in school, but also in real life and ultimately in many different careers. You can teach these big ideas, teach practices that students could carry into the other subjects. And by including it in the curriculum, I think the thought was that teachers then would see we're going to be able to do this as part of everyday instruction. And so the plan was that there would be a mix of carrying out procedures, multi-digit multiplication, solving equations, factoring, but at the same level of importance, conceptual understanding, application of concepts to problems, modeling with math. So students would learn about communicating their thinking, learn to do abstract reasoning, and they could communicate about the accuracy of the answers that math provided. And so from my view as a math teacher, there was a lot to like. There was some good clarity of topics, to be taught. So it made it easier for me as a teacher to know what I needed to have my students do by the end. And so this was all happening around 2008. 
And there were a bunch of different elements of, of how this well-intentioned effort backfired. The most public element of the backfiring was that the state tests were tied to common core standards. It meant that there would be a lot of pressure to show that these new ways of teaching and structuring math were improving results. It's the same thing as you mentioned with trying to grow more food. I mean, we are revamping everything that we're doing. Ideally, we're doing this because we know it's going to lead to improvement. And we need to show that that is the case. Otherwise, people aren't going to believe that this is the right thing to do. A big part of that backfiring was the rollout. Teaching students to think differently required teachers to actually teach in a different way. And it takes training. And in the midst of the financial crisis at the time, much of that training didn't happen in time. Teachers had to start teaching without full guidance on how to do this well because it was notably different. Some states adopted the Common Core and others didn't. Some did initially and then pulled out. And so there was lots of uncertainty about where this was actually headed. You think about the textbooks, a lot of the textbooks, because they are slow moving animals, many of them kept the exact same content and simply reordered and renamed it. And students learning in a different way also takes time. And so parents, who were saying the things that I said at the start, that they didn't use the math they learned. They couldn't use the math they learned to help their children because some of the new ways of teaching required going beyond the procedures they knew. They required understanding the procedures that the parents didn't understand in the first place. And that's where you had a lot of people on social media giving examples of children's homework that was unnecessarily complicated and arbitrary. Now, that wasn't Common Core. That was a genuine struggle of parents looking to help their children without the support they needed to understand what was actually different. I see this as an opportunity for parents to sit down and show some of the mathematical practices that they had developed with experience being out in the world of resilience and, and problem solving and working to understand the information that they were given in a problem. And instead, it just became frustration and, and continuation of the problematic view that math is something that is unique to school, and it's not actually relevant once you get out. So would you say the idea was good, though? I think it was a great idea. I saw it, and I, I was excited to see that powerful people were getting together and saying, we can do better than the math education that we've had for years, better than what I experienced when I went to school. There is the history of this going back into the 60s was new math, where they tried to do something very similar. And it followed a very similar pattern. We didn't seem to learn the lesson of trying to do a better job of understanding why people struggle the way they do. And so I wonder if the people who were going through this whole process looked at the history of similar efforts and, and made a change. I really don't know if they, if they learned from the mistakes that were made. Yeah, I feel like most things within education seem to have good intentions. The intention is usually to help students perform better, to help 
schools. I'm willing to give people the benefit of the doubt there. But at the same time, there's so many bad ideas in education, or at least poorly executed, because so much of it is based on money. Think about the fact that school districts need more money. And so one of the ways you know they do so is they have to make sure that they're meeting certain requirements in certain states in order to get that money. And the schools that need the money the most are the ones that aren't able to meet those standards. Like I remember No Child Left Behind. That if schools were failing, they took away money from those schools. I understand the intention. We want to make sure that schools are going to succeed. But the bad idea was that the people who need the most money didn't get that money. So I well, feel like education is one of those places that from an outside perspective, it's easy to pick on schools. It's easy to pick on teachers. It's easy to pick on the educational program because not every child's going to succeed every time. And as you and I have had this discussion before, you know, success in the end is what you're going for. We definitely don't want kids to succeed every time. If kids are succeeding every time, we're perhaps not challenging them. And state testing and assessment is a really poor way to give students opportunities to learn from their mistakes. As was the case with No Child Left Behind, school funding was tied to results. And the connection to the politics with Common Core was with Race to the Top, which was President Obama's initiative. Some of the qualifications to get the Race to the Top funds were tied to adopting Common Core. And this was occurring as Common Core was still being developed. And so to have a moving target and to say, you're going to take this thing, which is still under development, it's not tested, and we're going to make it the basis for millions of dollars of funding. It leads to those flawed priorities that were the same in your story with Mao. It's the priority is we need to show that we are growing a lot of food. We need to show that these systems of education are improving. And you can even get into the, the other piece of what came to mind when I really started thinking about backfiring. It's about math too, but I think you'll appreciate that it's closer to what you're interested in, and that is election. Oh, that sounds exciting. I want to know where this is going. <laughs> Good. My dad sent me an email today forwarding a story about how math professors are questioning the logic of continuing to teach calculus in high school and expect that everybody learns calculus. And this has been something that teachers have been discussing for a really long time. It's very often the universities that are saying calculus is very important. I am firmly in the camp that we should be questioning the logic of teaching calculus in high school, especially because not everyone needs it. And there are other mathematical ideas that make more sense for everyone to understand. And one of those is data science and probability and an intuitive understanding of uncertainty. And Common Core Math definitely puts a bigger emphasis on data science and probability and statistics. And my example of this backfiring actually goes back to a very big success, and that's silver and the 538 prediction of the 2012 election. I found this headline. The wording is, is fantastic. Numbers nerd Nate Silver's forecasts prove all right on election night. Look at that. You've got nerd in there. 
You've got rhyming in the end. And it's all about forecasts and numbers. And it is true that 538, which is Nate Silver's, it was his website, his team, his organization. I don't know what form it had back in 2012, but 538 correctly predicted the outcome in all 50 states. And that was where the electoral votes of each state was going to go. And so kind of the good idea here was that this was an example of someone using probability to make predictions on what was likely to happen in a situation where the results very much matter. And his predictions were right about the election. And so what he was able to do was take polling data, historical information about candidates, information about trends and how polls tend to change over time during the course of an election. He was able to take all this information and combine them to make guesses as to what would likely happen at the polls when people went to vote for president. And they were voting in 2012 between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. And the way it works is he runs simulations where essentially dice are rolled for each state based on polling data, based on all of those statistics that he had collected over time about how these things tend to change. So each state has a different set of of weighted dice based on those probabilities. He would run, I think it was 10,000 of those simulations. And when you take all those simulations together, you get a likelihood of different outcomes happening. And so the way that looks is out of 10,000, you can ask the question, how many of those simulations have President Obama winning? So maybe Obama gets, in one simulation, gets more of the votes. In another one, he gets slightly less. Because every time you roll dice, you get a different result. But based on those 10,000 simulations, he had over 9,000 of them that Obama would win. And that's the way that he was able to say that there was a 90% chance that Obama would win that election. Which he did. Which he did. And those results got him and his team a lot of fame and maybe fortune because people were really impressed that he was able to use math to do something useful. And not only say, this is what should happen, but actually predict what did happen. Now, the issue is that understanding probability and reading polls are very different things. Again, it doesn't mean that 90% of people voted for Barack Obama in 2012. It meant that out of those 10,000 simulations, 9,000 of them had Obama earning enough votes to hit 270 electoral votes. In some of those simulations, maybe he hit 275, maybe he hits 272. But in 9,000 of those simulations, he was over 270, which meant that he had a very, very probable chance of winning the election. Now, the success in 2012 meant that the idea of trying to use data to make predictions was a good one. The backfire was that there was enough misunderstanding of the rationale of what those results meant that there would be confusion in the case that the data was not as convincing. 90% is a pretty strong likelihood that something is going to happen. But if there was data that was not as sure, 
then people might misunderstand what those simulations would actually say. And that is exactly what happened in 2016. The data was very much not convincing. People wanted the predictions to be certainty in the face of an uncertain election. But because the data was less certain, the simulations were less certain. And so a 65% probability of Clinton winning versus 35% of Trump, which is where things ended up close to election night, those were the probabilities on the 538 model. And that is not certain. That still meant, according to that model, that Trump was winning 3,500 out of 10,000 simulations. But if you misunderstand those results, and if you think that by polling that Clinton is winning 65% of the votes, which is not at all what was being said by 538, then a Trump win would have been a shock if that's what was actually happening. And I think a lot of people did actually think that that's what the 65% probability meant. They said, 65% sounds pretty good. That's more than 50. That's definitely more than 50% Clinton's going to win. And there were a lot of people who felt comfortable with that 65% and said, I, I think we're okay. Maybe I can stay home. Nate Silver actually went through all of the different ways that he used logic and numbers and probability and statistics to back up the reasoning that was used to make that prediction. But most people at that point weren't looking for all of these other reasons, all of this justification for why the 538 approach was appropriate and why maybe those numbers can be trusted more than they were. You know, why, why do we fall for these quick answers, these fast ways to just say, I know what's happening. I know I'm looking for a quick fix to the problem that my child doesn't understand their math homework. I need a quick percentage number that someone can tell me that can say whether this election is going to go my way or not. So Evan, you're saying the intentions of people are good. People want certainty. That is the good intention. They want to know what's going to happen because they are afraid of an uncertain future. The bad idea is to trust data that they don't understand. Absolutely. I mean, you look at 538, they would say the same thing. And if you look at the 2016 election and the 2020 election, some very large states are looking at less than 10,000 people and that essentially swayed an election one way or another. And I remember in 2016, I, I kept saying, I want to see all the votes counted. I wasn't sure that Michigan, for example, was going to continue to trend towards Donald Trump. And I think it was a very close election there. And that is a state that flip-flopped in the next election. And that's people showing up for the polls because they believed it was important. So the people who may have stayed home in 2016 definitely came out in 2020. I think the problem is that when we have these numbers, that we assume that the numbers exist in isolation of what we do. And that's actually completely opposite of, of the reality. So Evan, I've really enjoyed hearing you talking about Common Core, Nate Silver, whole process of election, the polling, and the fact that 
We have the good intentions of wanting understanding in an uncertain world, but we don't always get it. I think that there are a lot of ideas floating around here. And I think it's interesting that your are, in fact, what seem like really good ideas as well. And maybe we shouldn't give up hope on Common Core. Maybe we shouldn't give up hope on Nate Silver. We should definitely give up hope on this great leap forward. In fact, eventually, even Mao, to admit that this is a failure, had to step away and give his support to people who wanted more market reforms within the Chinese community. And I think there's a, there's a time and a place to step back. There's a time and a place to keep on sort of working with it. If it's truly a good idea with good intentions, maybe that's a bit of a difference there. If the intentions are good and you're willing to think about how things are going and adjust or take the time to change direction when you ask questions and you see that things are not going the way they should be going. Maybe that's how you prevent the good intention from turning into a bad execution. Absolutely. So let's think about next week. I think to a certain degree, this one might tie in because one thing that keeps us sometimes from admitting our mistakes is the pesky notion of pride. And Nolan has given us the challenge for next week of talking about pride. Oh, I can't wait. Pride, the inability to accept that we are wrong, that we are imperfect, or that we have made a mistake. Absolutely. It goeth before the fall. Is that the phrase? Oh, yeah. Pride, pride goeth before the fall. I don't know where it's from, but it's definitely a thing. And you know who else has to go with? Me. I've enjoyed this conversation with you, Evan. I always enjoy time with you, Chris. Be well. All right. You too. And guys, don't forget to get your Tillamook cheddar cheese next time you hit to the store. They're not paying us yet, but I'm sure they will. We'll keep working on it. We have best of intentions with Tillamook cheese. Absolutely. It is a good idea. So long, everyone.